If you will, turn in your Bibles or else the text that's provided for you in the service bulletin for our scripture reading for this morning. Exodus 12, and uh, a, 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 a comment or two of background, this is the tenth of ten plagues. Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. Went down in the days of Joseph. God preserved not only Joseph, but Joseph and his brothers and his father Jacob. But as God had foretold, eventually Israel would be uh, subject to slavery in Egypt. And God heard the cries of his people and has now come to deliver them from this slavery and to bring them back to the land Uh, that he had promised to give to them in the days of Abraham. And so uh, this is the tenth of tenth ten signs or plagues, if you will, that God performed to loosen Pharaoh's grip on the Israelites whom he had enslaved. And so we'll be reading the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you, which when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Let's ask God the Spirit's help to understand and apply this word to our lives. Will you pray with me? O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. For apart from the Spirit, we don't see the truth and recognize it for what it is. We also pray, Spirit, that you would animate our hearts to believe these words. We're like the prophet's valley of dry bones, and we need your living breath within us to trust you. 
And we pray not only to hear and to believe these words, but you would make us doers of these words as well. And I pray that you would help me to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And these things we pray in his name. Amen. So I have a question for the kids here this morning. If you want something and you're not sure both of your parents will say yes, who do you ask first? Is it usually mom? Well, it might be usually mom, but you make the point. You usually ask the parent that you think will say yes first. And then uh, once you have a, what we call a quorum and a majority, you ask the other. This is an important life skill. It's called triangulation. Children, can you say that with me? Triangulation. Your, uh, your parents and other grown-ups have learned this skill too. Don't be um, fooled. Grown-ups triangulate. If I want to go out for Italian ice in my house, I ask my kids first and then my wife. Or at work, we sell the person that is most receptive to our idea on our ideas, and then we finally go to the most resistant. In uh, law enforcement, there's good cop, bad cop uh, to get people to uh, do what we want them to do. It's, it's, uh, it's a common life skill, but it's not always a good thing, is it? If you're a child of divorce, you, you knew how e easy it was to pit your parents against one another and even to get what you want, you sometimes might have been willing to create a lot of strife. And if you're a divorced adult, and you know, with, with children, you know how, how precarious this can be and how difficult it can be when you've been triangulated by your children. But um, even though triangulation happens in a variety of ways in, in human relationships, I suggest to you there's one way in which we all, to some degree or another, triangulate God. And the way we do this is when we put God's love or God's mercy in tension with God's justice. One of the earliest heresies of the church was the decision that the God of the Old Testament was a different God and the God of the New Testament was the God of love and the God of the Old Testament was the God of justice. And, and uh, there, there was a guy named Marcy and he even uh, shortened and, and, and truncated the Bible in this, for the interest of his bifurcation of God into two different gods. And in, uh, in, in modern ecumenical or liberal theology, often you see justice sacrificed for the sake of God's love or mercy, that God is no longer uh, condemning God, but only an approving God. And so uh, we see it in theologies, but we also see it within ourselves. You may be a justice guy or a justice gal, Somebody after service said, yeah, I'm a justice guy. I like to see people get what's coming to them. <laughs> but you know, justice people rarely seek justice against themselves, but only for themselves. We usually uh, err on the side of mercy for ourselves. Or unless you're an adult child of alcoholics, or you're a middle child, or, or, or you grew up in a household full of conflict, it's always mercy for the sake of justice, peace at any cost. And, and so the lifelong struggle is, is our own personally, how to reconcile God's justice and his mercy. In fact, the great religions of the world wrestle with this question and try to resolve it in different ways. But there's no answer 
to that triangulation of God's justice and mercy, except the one we find here in Exodus 12. What we're going to learn as we look more closely at this story is perfect justice and perfect mercy meet within God himself. Not in two gods, not in God against himself, but only within God himself. And that means if we want perfect justice and perfect mercy, we have to seek it in God's provision. So let's consider that dilemma and now look at the story that we've read to gauge how that is, that justice and mercy meet within God himself and only in God himself. And we can see that in the two things that God is described as doing here. And those two things come in verses 12 and 13, which will be where we'll focus. The first thing we see God doing is God, the destroyer, passes through the land bringing justice. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." Elsewhere in this chapter, God attributes that activity to the destroyer, but the destroyer is none other than God himself. God is going to pass through the land, all the land of Egypt. He's going to strike dead the firstborn in every house. And in doing so, he's bringing perfect justice. Now, uh, there might be several questions that come up in your mind. First of all, why the firstborn? Why will the firstborn of every house pay for whatever it is that's being paid for? Well, first we have to start with the house of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was the the leader of Egypt, the monarch of Egypt, the the, the emperor, if you will. And his actions had enslaved and brought suffering upon God's people for centuries. And Pharaoh himself was regarded among the Egyptians as God or God-like. And one thing God is doing in the Exodus is breaking down the power of Egypt's gods. In fact, if we were to look at all the plagues in the book of Exodus, we could connect each one of them to a separate Egyptian deity. When when the gnats afflict the cows of Egypt, it's it's an attack on the the cow gods of Egypt. Uh, Egypt had a number of bovine deities. Or when the frogs come and, and, and putrefy the land. Well, it's an assault against, there was a, a frog-headed god, goddess who was believed to help wom- women at childbirth. In fact, the very first plague, if you will, the turning of the Nile red at, to blood, uh, was a strike against Israel's great serpentine god, symbolized, if you've seen the movie, either Disney or Charlton Heston, symbolized in the serpent on Pharaoh's uh, crown and uh, around wrapped around his scepter. The Nile River with its serpentine qualities uh, was believed to be where the serpentine god of Egypt dwelled. And so when God strikes the Nile, he's striking that god as well. So each one of the plagues is an assault against an Egyptian god. And, and it's, not just, uh, uh, it's not just an idle contest here because What the Bible continually teaches is the gods of the nations enslave those whom they worship. Psalm 115 tells us that 
The gods of the nations are dead gods. They have mouths but can't speak, and they have eyes but can't see, and ears but can't hear. They're dead gods, and Psalm 115 reminds us that those who worship them become like them. We become what we worship. And so the gods of Egypt were were gods that enslaved, and we see that directly in the lives of the Israelites. So God is breaking down the power of Egypt's gods, and he's not doing it uh, in, in just a moment, he's doing it progressively because uh, God is like a, a, a prize fighter that will take his opponent to the last round, toying with him, as Muhammad Ali was known to do from time to time, toying with his opponent, and then finally when he's had his, had his, uh, his, uh, his, his time with his opponent, he'll knock him out, and that's what we see here. God is triumphing over the gods of the nations, not just for the sake of his own people. He wants the nations to know that their gods are not gods. And that there is one living and true God, and if we turn and worship him, we will live. And so God strikes the firstborn of the household of Pharaoh because the divine Pharaoh's son is the heir to the throne. But he strikes the firstborn of every household also because uh, life is communal. Life is corporate. You know, we are often deceived in such an individualistic Western society that somehow we're disconnected and free-floating and unencumbered by other people, whether we choose, where we could choose to be in relationship or not. But, you know, that's really not true to human experience. We're all connected. We're born into places and families and circumstances that we might try to transcend, but nevertheless, the actions of our parents and our grandparents and our nations and those around us all have consequences for us. And it was the social system, it was the economy of Egypt that had enslaved Israel. It was the need for slave labor to build the great projects that would glorify Pharaoh and all the nation following in the Pharaoh cult that had enslaved God's people. And whenever there's salvation, there's always defeat. God doesn't come and save without defeating those who have enslaved. That's true in the gospel, in the New Testament just as well. Uh, Mary said, this child shall be the rise and the fall of many. Uh, he, will send, uh, he will fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. That He'll cause the rise and fall of many. Because when there is salvation, there is judgment. And to, to free and liberate his people, God must break the power, not just of Pharaoh personally, but of Egypt corporately. But how does it then that God spares Israel? How is that fair? Every parent has been asked that question. Or actually, it's more of an assertion. That's not fair. And often people uh, look at uh, even the way God deals with his people in, 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 the, in, in Christianity and say, well, why is it fair that some people get mercy and some don't? Well, that's the second thing I want us to look at. We see God, the destroyer, going through to execute judgment. But we also see God, the lamb, covering God's people in mercy. God, the lamb, covering God's people in mercy. And to see that, look at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
Now, there's a lot that could be said about this whole preparation, but notice some of the things we read. It's a spotless firstborn lamb or goat that is taken to become the meal. Uh, that it, is, it has to be a perfect animal. And it is ritually slaughtered the night before. And th- there's some very intriguing details we don't have time to go into, but the way it is prepared is the way Israel would eat in the wilderness. They're not going to sit around pots like they did in Egypt when they're out in the wilderness. And some of you will remember later on, they say, we wish we were back at the stew pots in Egypt. Got to say, get used to life in the wilderness because life in the wilderness will be the life of liberation. Uh, Eat ready to go. Sleep in your clothes. (laughs) Have your staff in your hand. Because when God saves, it's going to happen so fast and so suddenly that you will be amazed. And even not using leaven is part of that. Not using leaven is is a sign of the haste with which they are to be ready to depart and, uh, and, and they won't need leaven in the wilderness because they're going to have the bread of heaven. But the thing we want to focus more in on is exactly what happens with the blood of the sacrifice and the use of it on the doorpost. Uh, the, the doorpost on the side of the door, the lintel across the top of the door, it's where the blood of this ritually sacrificed lamb or goat is to be placed. And we're told in verse 13, when God sees the blood, my translation says, I will pass over you. Now, rarely should a pastor suggest the translation of the Bible is not good. Most of the time, Bible's pretty good. our translations are pretty good. This is one which is, may not be as helpful, and I'll, 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 I'll explain why in a moment. But Passover looks like God is just a poor mailman. You know, he, he's, he misses a house, or a poor paper delivery service person. I got up this morning, the Orlando Sentinel was in all my neighbor's driveways, but it wasn't in mine. And it was supposed to be in mine. And I'm going to have to get justice later on this afternoon by calling the, <coughs> the hotline. And it'd be too late anyway, because I already read the paper online. So why should I complain? But this was what it looks like. God's going to pass over. So he's, he's going to come to the door of the Israelites. But before he visits death on that house, he's going to say, oh, I'm going to skip this house. But that's really not a good sense of what's really happening. This, this verb, Passover, doesn't occur very many places in the Old Testament. <clears throat> in fact, it occurs only in three places. One is here in chapter 12. It occurs later in the chapter. An, an, another one is when I, Elijah and the prophets of Baal are having their contest in 1 Kings 18. But the other that's more informative is Isaiah chapter 31, verse 5. In Isaiah 31, verse 5, God's reassuring Jerusalem that he will protect them. His chosen city, the place where his glory dwells. And he says, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will, and here's the word for Passover, spare and rescue it. And uh, the word... uh, here in Isaiah 31.5 is the same word that's translated Passover back in Exodus 12, but look at the image of Isaiah 31, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. God often in, in, in the Old Testament uh, is depicted as like a mother eagle spreading his wings in protection over his people. In Deuteronomy, he says, uh, 
uh, like a mother eagle in the, in the howling waste of the wilderness, I spread my wings over you. And even Jesus, when he looks out on Jerusalem and he's lamenting, he's drawing upon this. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered to you, you to myself as what? A mother hen, to, a, 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 a chicks to a mother hen. So there's this image here. It's in Isaiah 31. God is going to protect his people by spreading his wings over them. That's the same verb as back here in Exodus 12. Well, what would that mean? When I see the blood, I will cover or hover or spread my wings over you and no plague will befall you. Well, we have to add to this one more uh, piece of background information. In, in, In Egypt, it was very common for the Egyptians to carve images of their gods above the doorway and on the doorposts. If you go to the British Museum in London, you can actually see an Egyptian mausoleum, a a little funeral house, and you'll see Egyptian gods carved on the stone lintel and doorposts, and particularly you will see the most common form of that, the Egyptian sun god. The Egyptian sun god is depicted as a circle with bird wings coming out. See, it was a common sight in Egypt to look at a house, to look at the door, and see above the door a god of Egypt spreading his wings in protection over that house. But not for the Hebrew houses, not for the Israelite houses. And yet there was an image of a god who had spread his wings over their houses that night. Not the God of Egypt, not the sun God, but the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, the God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was executing judgment of all the gods of Egypt. He had spread his wings over the houses of the Israelites, but not in the form of a bull or a sun, but in the form of the blood of a lamb. You see... There was a death in every single house in Egypt that night. In the houses of the Egyptians, the worshippers of the sun god Ra, there was a death of the firstborn. But in the houses of God's people, the Israelites, there was a death of a substitute. A death of a lamb. But it wasn't just a lamb. Because God says... I will cover over you. And when God says that he is identifying himself with the lamb. See, it's not just the death of a lamb, but it's death of God the lamb. The death of I am in the form of an innocent, unblemished, perfect substitute. Just like centuries later, the death of the firstborn of all creation would be a substitute for those who would believe in Jesus Christ. No house was spared judgment that night. In fact, it's a principle throughout the Bible. God's people are never spared judgment. They are brought through judgment. Just like Noah and his family went through the flood, but were delivered out of it. Just like Israel walked through the same Red Sea that drowned the Egyptian army. 
Isaiah says this, doesn't he, in Isaiah 43, when you walk through the waters, you will not be overcome. And when you walk through the flames, you will not be burned. You'll walk through judgment waters. You'll walk through flames. But I am the Lord. I am with you. And therefore, you will be brought through the trial. Even in Christian baptism, we see that lesson. Going down into the waters is a drowning. But in Christ, we don't stay in the grave. We are brought up out of the judgment waters because Christ was raised out of the grave. And so, justice is perfectly satisfied. Not by God skipping, but by God covering. By taking the place of sinners. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, In in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So God is doing two things here in Exodus 12. He's doing two things that in our human capacities are irreconcilable. He's being perfectly and finally and fully just, and he's being perfectly, finally, and fully merciful. He is doing both. And perfect justice and perfect mercy can be reconciled only within Him in this way. There's no triangulation needed with God. God the just is satisfied because God is the merciful one. We shouldn't go around in our lives thinking it's God against God. We shouldn't wake up in the morning meeting the God of justice and at night plead with the God of mercy as if they are two different gods. You see in Exodus 12 the resolution of that great question. How does God's justice and God's mercy meet? And we find it in God the Lamb. Psalm 85, perhaps among all the Old Testament psalms, speaks to us in such clear ways about this. Psalm 85, verses 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The King James used to say it, justice and peace have kissed. Because justice and peace are reconciled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Paul said it in Romans 3, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're familiar with John Newton's hymn, Let us wonder, grace and justice, joined to point to mercy's store. When by grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. If you have trusted Christ as Lord, justice has smiled. 
Justice hasn't been gagged. Justice hasn't been blinded. Justice hasn't been exiled from the room. Justice smiles. Because Christ, the righteous one, was sacrificed for our sin. So that we would be reckoned righteous in God's sight. That by his mercy, through faith, we can be reckoned right with God. And it's appropriate to think about these things on a day when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Supper of Jesus Christ, which was instituted on the Passover night. The one who set the feast himself was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We look and heaven opened in Revelation and we see he is the slain and standing lamb who is able to open the book of life. He is the firstborn son of God who wasn't spared judgment but instead underwent judgment for us so that he could be the firstborn of many sons and daughters of God. He is not only the one who serves the feast, but like the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, the host of the feast has become the meal as well. Because in the Lord's table, Christ doesn't just bid us to come, but he bids us to come and feed upon him as the bread of life, as the living water, as the cup of blessing. We come not to a funeral here today. We come to a feast. Because Christ, our Passover, not only was slain, but he was raised and he lives. And there is life in him. On the night of the Jewish Passover, Jewish children to this day, the youngest child, is commissioned to ask this question. Why is this table different? I'm sorry, why is this night different from all other nights? But every Christian child should learn to ask of this table, why is this table different from all other tables? And the answer is this that the Lord of the host is also the feast himself. He is not merely a sacrifice but a meal to strengthen us, to commune with Him, to share in His life, and to share in life together as His body. So I ask you to join me as we prepare to come to this table, contemplating how justice and mercy have kissed in God Himself, and now is offered to us in this sacred meal. Will you pray with me? God, help us to comprehend your great mercy in your Son, so that comprehending it, we might grow in our love for you. That growing in our love for you, we might learn to grow in our love for one another, and therefore show the world that we are your disciples. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.